This is Radiance Tape Number JD94, a message by Jim Durkin entitled, Changed into His Likeness. What you are being asked to do is not something that is special for this particular generation, nor is it something that we're dreaming up to make a work function. But it's something that is eternal in the heart of God for his people. Something that he's calling us to. See, when we receive Jesus, he relates to us as Father. He relates to us as our God. He relates to us as our covering in our Savior. But we have not yet learned to relate to him. So we must now relate to him and make that united relationship a two-way relationship. So that's why the Word of God. That's why the Spirit of God that comes into us to urge us on to certain kinds of actions and the renewing of our mind so we no longer think the way we thought when we were a part of the world system. The Bible says that the whole world lies in wickedness. Now we have to either receive that as a true revelation from God or we have to take exception to it. Well, what it really means in the Greek is the whole world, that is all that are under this world system, now we, by the grace of God and through the intervention of God, have been lifted out of that world system in truth. Now we must make it real in practice. It is not real in practice just because we have received Jesus. It is real in our position in God. It is real in his relating to us. But the Bible says the whole world, now here's the practical aspect of it, the whole world lays in the lap of the wicked one. And even we who have been snatched out of the kingdom of darkness, though we're no longer of the world, we're in the world. And though we are no longer of the world, yet some of the world's thinking is still in us. Because we've been programmed that way. You see, what evil really is, is self-centered behavior. I become committed to me. I become committed to the gratification of the things that I want to do the propensities or the leanings of my soul or my mind or whatever it is that moves within me according to the way that I've been trained in this life, this present evil generation. So we've been taught certain things are valuable. And we've been taught that without these certain things, you cannot be content. You cannot have a good quality, and that's the word, quality of life. We need to examine those things and see if men and women who have gone before us who have examined these same questions for us and have spoken the words of God under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, what did they consider to be the things that produced quality of life? What did they consider the things that produced happiness? and joy, and peace, and contentment. Now in this world in which we live, we're taught that certain things produce happiness. And my wife and I were caught up with this for years, and we kept saying, if we just had a 
then I believe we'd be happy. If we just had a, then I think we would be content. See, if we had a car that didn't run too well, we'd say the reason we weren't happy is because if we took a trip from here to some place, the car might break down. Now, it didn't often break down, but it might break down. We learned how to drive with the car we had. We didn't wrap it or, you know, really go at it. But it was always the thought, yes, but we're always afraid that it might break down. So here was this inner conflict going on. And so we thought the reason we were not happy is because of this tension that was there. Then someone might see our car and say, when are you going to get a new car? That one's about worn out, isn't it? And we think, oh, the reason we're not happy is because we feel so inadequate because everyone else has a new car, new house, new clothes, new, and we don't have that. So we felt inadequate, we felt weak, we felt second rate, we felt unhappy, we felt miserable. We didn't have a good quality of life. And we examined these questions, and the answer we came up with, that if we just had these things, then we would be happy, and life would be wonderful. And so we strove to get those things. And amazingly, we discovered that when we got a better car, that we didn't have to worry about the car breaking down. That gave us time to worry about other things that we hadn't been worrying about until we got the better car. And so we went on from worry to worry. I used to say to my wife, if we can just get over this hump, then I think we're there. And you know all that we discovered when we got over that hump? There was another hump and another peak and another, say, on. Now, I look in the Word of God, and I see men facing death with joy. I see men being beaten with whips, shamed, threatened, and yet going from the presence of these tormentors, going from the presence of these men who have threatened their lives and threatened their futures, and actually thanking God that they were worthy to suffer shame for his name. What kind of a different mentality is this? I am unhappy because I have a car that might break down, not that it broke down often. I am unhappy because I have a suit of clothes that is not exactly the newest style. This is the design of the world to bring us in the bondage. So here we're talking about people who have examined these questions of long life. They've examined the questions of money. They've examined the questions of prestige. They've examined the questions of the acceptance of this world. They've examined all of these things. And they've come up with some totally remarkable opposite conclusions to what the world comes up, and they speak in one unity about these things. And I'd like us to look into the heart of some of these people. Two of them at least, maybe more. One of them, our brother Paul, great apostle, and the other one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I especially want to choose him so that I can dispel any ideas that some could have. 
And the idea that they could have about Jesus and say, well, certainly he thought that way because he was God. Yes, he was God. Very God of very God. God from eternity. God with no beginning. The eternal self-existent one. That he was. But the Bible makes it clear to us that he was also holy man. And that he emptied himself of those traits. And he came down and took upon him not the nature of angels, but the nature of Abraham. And he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Now tempted. I want to take time to develop that idea just a little bit. If I have no capacity to respond to that which I am being tempted to do, or if I have no desire or reflection on that at all because it reaches no responsive chord in me, I doubt if that could be said that I was tempted. I think virtue is the result of being presented choices. You see, Adam and Eve, when they were put in the garden, were merely referred to as good, not as virtuous. Good means no inherent evil in them. God had not flawed them or left them twisted or some bent in their personality, so they had to commit evil. God looked upon them and saw that they were good. All that he made was good. But they were not virtuous. Virtuous requires that I be presented with clear choices. This is a choice, and I understand the nature and quality of the choice. And here is a choice, and I understand the nature and quality of that choice. One is good because it is good within itself. The other is evil because it's evil within itself. And I, having full capacity to choose good or choose evil... I choose good. And that is a virtuous act. Virtue is not the absence of evil. Virtue is the positive doing of good. So the Lord Jesus says to us, He that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not. Now it doesn't say the person does the opposite to what Jesus said. just says he doesn't do them. So here we have a man not virtuous. The man may be good in the sense that he hasn't done anyone any evil. He didn't murder anybody. He didn't lie to anybody. He didn't cheat anybody. But neither did he do anything. This also is evil. But it requires that I be presented with choices. And that I understand the nature and quality of the choice. And then seeing the difference between these two things... I say, no, I will not do that. God wants me to do this. Lord, help me. And not in your own strength, but in God's strength, you turn from the evil to the good, and you embrace that which is right, and you walk in it. Well, Jesus had that presented to him, and Paul had that presented to him, and James had that presented to him, and down through the ages, men and women of God have been presented with these choices. And the more powerfully they are being used of God, the more powerful are the choices of evil that they could turn to. Satan does not easily give away his baubles, though they're worth nothing to him at all. 
but he has a limited supply of them, and he can't give everybody everything, though he would lie and tell you that he had an unlimited supply, and he can give everybody a million dollars. Just follow him, and you'll be rich. He can't do that. The amount of money that he can generate on this earth is very limited. The amount of money that God could generate is unlimited because he's creative and he can bring forth all kinds of things. He can make you suddenly stand on a gold mine, a platinum mine, a uranium mine, or anything that he wants to do. He can regenerate the ground when it's utterly destroyed in nothing but a rock pile and turn it into a fertile farm overnight. But Satan can never do that. He's limited. God is utterly unlimited, you see. But in any event, these men had choices. And the more you become powerfully used of God, the more Satan takes that limited supply and says, Look, I'll give you this. I'll do this if you just follow me. Now with Jesus, knowing who he was, he started out by saying, hopefully that just a nothing would do it. If you be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And you see what a cheap trick that was? He intended to give him nothing if he could get out of it, just to have him fall and be destroyed. That didn't work. Then he takes him up onto the top of the temple and says, throw yourself off here. But you won't fall. And the people will see you as the angels catch you and you'll come Gently, gracefully down to the earth, they'll all fall down and worship you and they'll know who you are and won't have to go to the cross. Not so. That didn't work either. Then the devil, knowing that this is the one he's got to stop, takes him up on a, an exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them in a moment of time and said, fall down and worship me, and all this shall be yours, for I have power to give it. You see, he threw everything he had at it. Now, Jesus understood the nature and the quality of those choices. I suppose in every wit, because the Bible makes it clear that he certainly was man, I suppose in every way that that responsive cord rose up in him, not that he wanted those things, but that the thought, well, maybe that would be right. That I could just this one time turn those stones into bread, just once, and then... And then he saw the nature and the quality of it, that he was going to use the power of God only to show off to the devil, or only to feed himself instead of trusting that God would take care of him and meet his needs. And he says, oh no, Satan, I see the quality of the choices. I see the nature of the choice. You want me to act in the same way that has destroyed this world. You want me to act in a way that separated you from God. You want me to act in a way that is destroying everything it touches. No, I'll not do that because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That's my food. And I suppose he could have added other words because there are men like Job 
when his body was filled with boils, his home was destroyed, his treasures gone, his empire crumbled, his wife even coming and saying to him, why don't you curse God and die? I don't know if she meant like, get out of your misery, I don't want you around. I don't think that, I think she loved him. But I think she was saying, if this terrible thing has come upon you, why don't you get it over where it's going to be a matter of time you die anyhow? And I think this man also understood the nature and quality of that choice. And what did he say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. If he wants to take my life, then in his moment that's all right. But I'm not going to hurry it up. Jesus, if God wants me to starve, then I'll starve. But I will not take that divine power which God has given me and use it for my purposes. God will supply my need according to his riches and glory. So on with the rest of the temptations. But I suppose Jesus was tempted. That's what the Bible says. He was tempted in all points, like as we are. I suppose he could see how, if all the kingdoms were his, that he could say to the people, and here would be the rationale, the rationalization process, then I could tell them all to worship God, then I could bring righteousness into the world, then I could revamp the monetary system and get rid of all the injustice, then I could, then, then I could. I suppose that pull was there. See? And then he understood what he had to do to effect that. Either he had to wait till God reclaimed the earth, or he had to turn away from his eternal father and worship the devil. All those things are constantly presented to us. But we are not alone. We are able to look at a gray cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. Men who have had their eyes opened and have beheld the glory of the world and all their kingdoms and their power. And I said, no part of it. I want a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And they despised the pleasures of sin for a season and chose rather to suffer shame and pain and rejection with the people of God than to enjoy those pleasures for just a season. Amen? Now let's take a look at our brother Paul. Turn with me please too, and I'm going to be reading this out of the Phillips translation. This is Philippians chapter 3 verse 4, I'll start. Here's a man that had something laid out before him, and he had a choice. It was quite a choice. Chapter 3 verse 4, if it were right to have such confidence, I could certainly have it. And there's Paul speaking. And if any of these men thinks he has grounds for such confidence, I can assure him I have more. I was born from the people of Israel. See, some might say, well, you know, I'm a pretty powerful apostle, or I'm a pretty powerful prophet, or I'm a pretty powerful preacher, or I'm a pretty powerful evangelist, because you see, I came from a line of preachers, and my whole family is this and that. He said, just a minute, you that are boasting on your natural endowments, if you think that you have something to boast about, 
I can tell you if it gets down to boasting, Paul says, I have more that I could boast about. If any of these men thinks he has grounds for such confidence, I can assure him I have more. I was born from the people of Israel. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was the time to be circumcised. Some had to be circumcised much later than that because people fell away from God and uh, then later on they decided that ought to be done. But the eighth day was the time. I was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I was, in fact, a full-blooded Jew. As far as keeping the law is concerned, I was a Pharisee. And what could be more law-keeping than the Pharisees? It was a sect raised up to keep the law to the letter and even to go beyond the letter. You know what those Pharisees did? They didn't just keep the law. They wrote a whole bunch of additional laws to define how to keep it. So that where it says, six days shalt thou labor, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, and thou shalt do no work. They went on to define what a tailor could do on Sunday. He could carry no more than the weight of a needle. He could only walk so many steps, and he had to sit down. He could not. Uh, and they kept those things to the best of their ability, and some were absolutely meticulous in keeping those things. Now, Paul is going to go on and say, as far as keeping the law is concerned, no one could have found fault with me. Now, boy, that's pretty heavy talk. But I believe he spoke the truth. And you can judge my enthusiasm for the Jewish faith by my active persecution of the church. That showed how much he was into it. Killed and slaughtered for the sake of his religion. As far as the law's righteousness is concerned, I don't think anyone could have found fault with me. Now listen to this next word. Yet every advantage that I gained, I considered lost for Christ's sake. Hallelujah. You see, he could have used those things. He had money. And maybe he could have bought his way to the top. He could have bought the fanciest church in Antioch. He could have bought and outfitted with the fanciest furniture. He could have advertised on the most powerful TV stations of his day. Not that these things are wrong in themselves. Not wrong to advertise, not wrong to have a good building. But he had the financial muscle. He had the organizational know-how. He had that dynamic drive, that executive power which would have propelled him to the top anywhere, except in the things of God. And here he realized those things were foreign to the work of God. And he said, all of those natural advantages, which people are so prone, who you mean, you are a, and that your parents were, and that you really, and that you went to, and you, oh wow, this must be a, he said, I counted them all as nothing. Because he was looking for another kind of promotion. Another kind of movement. He examined those questions. Yet every advantage that I gained, I considered loss for Christ's sake. Yea, and I look upon everything as loss for the overwhelming gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. See, what he's saying is, it's not important to be the greatest preacher. 
It's not important to be the greatest elder, not important to be the greatest deacon or apostle or anything else, not important to have, not important to have at all. He's saying two things are important, to be and to know. That's important. To be a son of God. That's important. And to know Jesus. That's important. And he said, all of the other things may be added if they're needed. But what's important is for you to be a son of God. You to know Jesus. Now Paul said, I had all these things. And I could have put on a show that wouldn't be over yet. But he said, I counted them all nothing in order that I might go on to know him. Amen? That's the aim, you see. For his sake I did in actual fact suffer the loss of everything. But I considered it useless rubbish compared with my being able to win Christ. For now my place is in him. And I am not dependent upon any of the self-achieved righteousness of the law. God has given me that genuine righteousness which comes from faith in Christ. Oh, how changed are my ambitions. Now I long to know Christ and the power shown by his resurrection. Now I long to share his sufferings. Oh, don't you see a man is talking from a whole different point of view. He's saying, I have all those things that the world looks for. They were mine. He said, I was born of the best of family, so that any society that I went to, I would immediately be received. I could go and they would say, who are you? I am Paul the freeborn. Why, with great money I had to purchase this freedom, said one great military leader of his day. Paul said, but I was freeborn. Oh, wow, that's, uh, man, that's fantastic. Money? Paul had treasure. Authority, Sanhedrin. Above his fellows because of his greater zeal. He was a comer. He had it together. And he said, I looked at it, and there was the nature and quality clear to me. I saw it all. And it was mine. I had it. And then he said, I was turned like this, and I saw him. And that person Jesus said to me, I will show you how great things you must suffer for my name's sake. Seeing me has made you blind. Seeing me and knowing me will cause you to become the enemy of these people. Oh, you see, these men had it. These women had it. All laid out there before them. And they looked at those things and they beheld him and said, there they are, they're yours. And then they looked at Jesus. And they said, compared to him, I want to read some words of our Lord Jesus. I'll come back to Paul in just a moment because he has something else to say here that's pretty powerful. Turn with me please now to the book of John, 12th chapter. Show you the attitude that moved him. And that must become your attitude. So when I've ministered to you, the purpose of God. And this is chapter 12, verse 23. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, Jesus didn't particularly want to be glorified. 
Matter of fact, if he'd have wanted to be glorified every time he'd healed a person, he'd have told him, now, you got healed by me, right? Yes. Don't forget my name, J-E-S-U-S, that's the way it's spelled. Be sure to tell everybody everywhere you go that you are healed and uh, they can come here. We're going to have a meeting tonight at 7.30 and all kinds of things. He could have told him that. You know what he really told him? He said, don't tell anyone except go to the priest and show yourself for a testimony unto them. He knew that his ability to get the work of God didn't depend on that kind of thing. God's man of faith and power for this hour before he went sour. See, I mean, that's the kind of mentality that many of us have for this day. We just, we get somebody healed of a headache and man, we just can't hardly wait to get on the television and tell about the fantastic miracle that took place. And here Jesus heals people of leprosy, raises them from the dead. And they say, we're ready to tell everybody. He said, don't tell a soul. Now that didn't stop him from doing it because people just naturally have to talk about things, you know. But, he said, don't tell him. And somebody said, oh, he knew psychology, the Lord did. And he knew by telling not to tell him that they would tell more people than if he said to tell him. Well, I want to tell you, that kind of thinking just sends me right up a wall. I don't think our Lord was a psychologist in that sense. Oh, he understood psychology, the study of the soul. He knew what was in that. But I don't think he sat there and said, oh, let me see here. <laughs> I know psychology now, Now I really wanted to tell everybody, but uh, I know if I tell them to tell everybody, they won't do it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell them not to tell everybody, oh, even though I want them to tell everybody, so I'll tell them don't tell anybody, and then they will go and tell everybody, so I'll get... Now, can you imagine our Lord, who spoke only the truth, pulling off some kind of a silly, foolish deal like that? He meant don't tell anybody. Well, now it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abideth alone. He's getting ready to fall in the ground and die. He knows that too. But he also knows that unless he does that, then all of the wonderful things that the Father wants done on this earth can never be done. And that's what he's committed to. He's long ago turned the world in its glory. He's long ago turned his back on jumping off temples and hoping that that will win the world. He's long ago turned his back on performing miracles so he can eat. He knows God will take care of him. He knows that the Lord will glorify himself in his own time, in his own way. And though he's gone all this time and now he's popular, he rose to a peak and now it's just literally plummeting. And he's no longer the popular healer. Now the forces, the dogs of war, are rising and beginning to come down upon him. And he feels that ring tightening and tighter and tighter. Though he can call in a moment of time for legions of angels and clean the earth up. But he must not do that either. But he says, don't you know I could do that? But he must not do that. He said, except the corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And I say this to you. You've got a choice of just hanging on to enough of God so that you can say, well, I'm praying all right, and once in a while I go to church and I read a little bit of the Word, but you see, I'm mostly taken up with, the, I got all, these things are pressing me, they're all just pushing me at all times, and I just can't. That's trying to save our life and we stay above ground. We never get to where we fall in the ground and die. 
We never really give up and say, get me off of this sterile shelf. We're always hanging on to what's above the ground because that's the thing that we want unless God sets us free, unless we really look at what the Word of God has to say, spoken through these men who examined their day. Look at King Solomon. He said, I built gardens. I built palaces. I did this. I did that. I explored this. I checked this. I did everything. And you know what his conclusion is because he went away from God? He said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. When he got all done with everything, because he'd missed God, he said, it is sickening. There's nothing. said, the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God and serve him while you're young. These men look at it. These women looked at it. And they made a clean-cut choice and said, Jesus, I'm coming your way. And some of them paid with their lives and paid with their bodies being mutilated and tormented and broken and their children being taken away from them and their parents being slaughtered and they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted and tormented, sleeping in caves of whom the world was not worthy. But they gave a clear testimony, and that's the cloud of witnesses that it's talking about in Hebrews. Seeing we therefore are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and run with patience the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. That unbelief, that getting away from the testimony of Scripture and saying, well, maybe I could look again at the world and... and no! Close your eyes once and for all. Turn your back on those things. Take firm hold of that which you have been taken firm hold of and move toward that. See? Well, here's our Lord Jesus said, except the corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. Oh, the very thing we try to keep is the thing we're going to lose. And the very thing we abandon to God will keep forever. Isn't that a paradox? My whole intellectual mind says, no, hang on to that. Because you don't know what's out there. Yes, I do. This tells me what's out there. His Spirit tells me what's out there. There may be some moment of pain as we go through death. There may be some moment that that last enemy which is not swallowed up will take us. There may be some moment of torment and rejection and pain. There may be some feeding with whips and hunger. Paul said this light affliction which is but for a moment worketh in us a far more and exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's what he's talking about. But we have to believe this testimony. We have to become convinced of the truth of it. The Spirit of God must bear witness to our spirit that this is the truth and that He is the truth. And we're living in a whole different kingdom already. And we cannot go back to that kingdom of darkness to find our pleasure and our satisfactions. No wonder James said, You adulterers and you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He, therefore, that will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Because it must of necessity be so. Because instead of walking toward him, you're walking toward this. 
and you're causing others to say, come with me, let us go back into this out of which you have been called. Never go back to Ur of the Chaldees. Never go back to Egypt. Never go back to that kingdom of darkness for which you came from, which you came out. But always with a steadfast step, move onward. Now Jesus here finishes up these words by a most remarkable statement. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now my soul is troubled. You see, Jesus had his troubles too. He meant his soul was emotionally churning. He knew what was there. The cross was there. You think he didn't know what it was like to have spikes driven into his hands? Not exactly, but he could imagine it. He'd been cut. He'd been bruised. He'd been jabbed. He'd been poked in his lifetime. He'd fallen down, got his share of bumps and scrapes. He'd seen blood pour out of his body. God made sure of that. He knew what that meant. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. In other words, shall I pray that, Father? Say, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. See, here he is. God has brought him along. And now the next hour in time, not 60 minutes, but the next period in time, he knows it's a countdown to the cross. He knows this body which God has given him, which is whole and complete. Eyes that can see, a mind that can think, hands that can gesture, a mouth that can speak the words of God, blood that's flowing in his veins. He knows that in a very short time, it'll be spilled on the ground. He knows the prophecy, knows his back will be laid open, knows his heart will be pierced. Those blood and water will pour out. Those crown of thorns will be placed on his beard, plucked out, beaten, until he will not even resemble a man. And he said, my soul is troubled. Shall I say, Father, deliver me from this hour? No, he said, for this very cause came I unto this hour. Now look at the last wording here. Verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Amen. Don't you see that was his purpose? Nothing moved him except that one thing. Fall on the ground and die? All right. Suffer and bleed at the cross? All right. Come to this hour of torment? All right. But what would the end of it be? Only one thing was important. Would you say it with me, please? Father, glorify thy name. That's commitment. Let me wind up with these words of our Apostle Paul here. And here's what he said. How changed are my ambitions. Now I long to know Christ and the power shown by his resurrection. Now I long to share his sufferings, even to die as he died, so that perhaps I may attain as he did to the resurrection from the dead. Yet my brothers... I do not consider myself to have arrived spiritually, nor do I consider myself already perfect. But I keep going on, grasping ever more firmly that purpose for which Christ Jesus grasped me. My brothers, 
I do not consider myself to have fully grasped it even now. But I do concentrate on this. I leave the past behind. All of its pull. I leave Egypt behind. I leave her of the Chaldees behind. I leave the world behind. All of us that God said, you just do this, I will. So I leave it all behind. And with hands outstretched to whatever lies ahead, I go straight for the goal. My reward, the honor of my high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I go straight for the goal. All of us who are spiritually adult should set ourselves this sort of ambition. And if at present you cannot see this, maybe this morning there are some who can't see this, although I think it is clear when I spoke. I think the Word of God is so utterly clear on this point. Paul says if you can't see this, yet you will find that this is the attitude which God is leading you to adopt. It is important that we go forward in the light of such truth as we ourselves have attained to. And so this morning, I bring this to a close, asking you to weigh the thing. Jesus said, count the cost. Look at it. Jesus said, you go after this, and you lose your life. And he said, what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It is nothing. But he said, he that will lose his life for my sake, he that will take up his cross daily, forsake all that he hath and follow me, he shall find his life unto life eternal. No one will ever take it away from you. And at the end, there will be a crown of righteousness, placed in the counsels of God, that we may dwell with him forever and ever and ever. That's what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to forget the things that are behind. And as you walk down the road and the world calls you and says, I know you're moving straight toward the goal, but can't you just turn aside and, and you turn and you look at it and you say, well, maybe just for a moment I could. Don't think when you get out there you're going to turn back and it never works that way. You see, when you get away from this direction here that you're moving straight toward the goal and that's what sin is, it's missing the mark. It's like there's the bullseye and you're aimed at it and something spoils your aim so that you shoot off in another direction. Miss the mark. So you're moving straight toward the goal. You let go of those things which are behind and you're moving toward the goal and something says, just for a moment over here. And you, well, I don't suppose that would hurt. I know where the road is and I'll be right back. And then you, you walk here. And you think, okay, now I'm ready to turn. Somebody says, just look here. Well, well, that's, I suppose. And then, and you know what you find yourself doing? Going just opposite to the direction. Paul said, I waited out. I did just like Jesus said. I counted the cost. And he said, it is all dumb that I might win Jesus. That's my message to you. I tell you, I testify to you. And my aim and my desire and my ambition is to glorify God. To finish his work. That this generation shall have seen the gospel preached to every kingdom. 
This shall be published in every nation, and every creature shall have heard the message. My aim and my purpose in life, or whether I see it or not, lays in the hands of God, because I realize I could live 50 more years or go to be with him tomorrow. But whether to live or to die is of no consequence. That his will be accomplished is of consequence. But if I live, I shall work to see the church become one, and not one in organization. That's up to God. But one in heart, that brothers may walk with brothers, that we may not have these artificial walls that separate us and divide us, tear us apart one from another. Oh, but that we can walk together, that the world may believe that God sent Jesus and that God loves us even as he loved the Son, that we may be one even as they are one. That's what I'm given to. And I have no other aim, no other purpose, no other desire. Nothing motivates my life except one thing, that God may be glorified in us and that his name may be exalted in us and his work may be completed, that he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. I want that to be your ambition. I want that to be your aim. Amen? Amen. Would you stand then with me, please? Blessed Father, it is to you that we look. Oh God, we have stated a great ambition. Lord, we have stated a great longing of our hearts, which we know you have placed there. A desire to know you, Father. A desire to know our Lord Jesus in that intimate, personal way. We may behold him in everything. We may see him living in us and living through us and living in our brothers and sisters. And that the world may believe that you have sent him. That the church may come together in that holy union, Lord. Where we know by one spirit we have been baptized into one body. And we really love one another. And we lay down our lives for each other. Oh God, that this glorious good news about our Lord Jesus Christ. This glorious story of your matchless love that you so loved the world that you gave you told us to go into all the world and proclaim it to every creature oh God may it be done in our generation may it be completed in our generation may there not be a nook or a cranny where it is not done and may that be so Lord because we have let go of everything in our past and Lord we move only toward the goal that our meat our food our life becomes to do your will and to finish the work which you have given us to do. Oh God, let that become our ambition. Let that be our ambition. Father, when our lives are laid to rest, or if we shall be here at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, may, Lord, we be able to look back on a life which has been spent giving glory to you and seeing that name raised up. And Lord, because of the labors of your people, because of your grace in causing us to have that desire, Lord, may all of us be able to look back on hundreds and thousands and millions of people that are glorifying God because of that grace which you have placed upon us and that drive, that ambition, not of the world, but that ambition to see your name glorified, Lord. May that be done. 
may it be done in our lifetime, Lord, but that we submit to your will perfectly. My heart is set, my face like a flint. Finish this work that God has given us to do. Let's go along and get it done.